What up, what up, what's happening, guys? Welcome into the Creating Space Podcast. Maz Joe Brani comes in today, and not only is he hilarious, he had me rolling in my chair, and you're going to hear it throughout the entire podcast, but also he had this incredibly interesting philosophical side where the wisdom was just spewing out of his pores while he, sh- while he chatted, while he shared his story, uh, and you're going to feel that. I really love being around that energy, hearing the stories throughout his journey that were super interesting, especially when he was talking about dealing with the pressures from his family, about staying on track to get his PhD and become a professor, uh, but he had to follow his heart. He had to create space for his dream, and it's just such an incredible, incredible story, and I can't wait for you guys to get into it, but before we do that, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we're giving away $1,000. My team and I are giving away $1,000 of our services, whether uh, you're building a brand and you need consultation one-on-one for strategic purposes and you need to get clear on where you're going, maybe dialing in your message, or maybe you want to get better and better at how you copyright or finding new uh, unique customers or whatnot, or maybe you need some video production and you need to make a video that really connects with your, your customers or your ideal audience and continues to elevate your brand to the next level, guys, we're giving away $1,000 of that. That's uh, one video produced. That's uh, an hour of consultation for strategy. And I can't wait to choose one of you guys, one of you lucky winners on February the 20th, 2020 of this year. So check down into the show notes. There's a nice little easy link there for you to sign up. Just throw your name, phone, email into that. And uh, that's what you've got to do to get in uh, to that giveaway and to be chosen potentially on February the 20th. Anyways, let's dive into this amazing podcast with Maz Joe Brani, one of the funniest cats I've ever met in my entire life. What up, what's happening, guys? Welcome back to Creating Space in the heart of Charlotte here, Wheelhouse Media. You can't tell it right now, but I'm bursting from the scenes, man. We got a guy who, if I could go back to my 10th grade basketball locker room and bring these guys into the studio right now, they'd be rolling, man. We've got Maz Jobrani. He's uh, Moly from Friday After Next. I, I, I don't have enough time to read his IMDb. I mean, he's all over the place. Guy is one of the more inspiring and hilarious humans that I've ever seen, and I'm absolutely stoked to have him on the show. Maz. Welcome to Creating Space, man. Thanks for having me, Wes. This is cool, man. Yeah, no, this is amazing. It's cool that you're in Charlotte. I know. Um, Like, you being on a a tour, I wouldn't imagine that Charlotte would be a place that would be your market, but it's wild. I wouldn't imagine either, man. (laughs) No, I've 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 done Charlotte a few times. I actually think Charlotte's a a nice place, man. I've been here a few times, and I'll be honest, like, my shows, I've... I take pride in my shows being diverse. Yeah. Because a lot of times, especially like, you know, I'm from Iran. I was Iranian-American. Sure. And so, especially my community, a friend of mine was telling me, he goes, he goes like, whenever I do shows, my community comes out. Mm. So he was saying, you're like the Persian Elvis, otherwise known as pelvis. <laughs> but but he was saying, uh, you know, uh, my community, people from the Iranian, Iranian background, they think that all my shows are all Iranians until they come and they go, wait a minute, there's all kinds of people. For sure. So Charlotte's one of those. Like last night we had Jamaicans, we had Arabs, we had Nicaraguans, we had white people, we had black people, we had Persians. We had it all. I love that, man. I love it, man. We bring them all together. You're the guy for the immigrants. I'm the it, guy it, for the immigrants. It's amazing. I'm the, I'm the guy for, for just diversity. I mean, diversity Culture. for me is so important because... 
Because it allows me also in, in the show, first of all, we laugh together, right? Yeah. But secondly, I think it's it allows us to to go to different places. There's people there's been times where people are from uh, a place that I'm not familiar with. So that allows the crowd work to go a little bit further. Of course. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, where, you know, if, if you're, what language do you guys speak in whatever country you're from? And I'll do it because I do a lot of crowd work. And that ends up becoming part of it. We all just, we embrace everybody. We got a crowd working right now, man. You have to bring Moly alive. Holy Moly Donna Shops. <laughs> Say it with me. Say it with me. Oh my God. That's crazy, dude. Let's, let's, get, let's start there, man. Yeah. Because it, it, I, I would be remiss not to do that. Yeah. Um, what a what a cast of characters that you get to. It's, it really is right around the beginning of your career, right? Yeah, that was towards the start of my career. I think we filmed it in. We must have filmed it uh, a little bit. It was it was after September 11th, uh, so it was probably uh, late 2001, early 2002 when we filmed it. Yeah, and I just got some sort of alert on my Twitter or something where it said. It came out around Thanksgiving of 2002, so it must have been early 2002. And you know, it's Ice Cube, and he created that uh, franchise, the Friday franchise, with originally um, uh, um, Chris Tucker. Yeah, and it was legendary, right? And it sure. had a, it was just a cult hit, you of know. Of course. And so to have them do number two and then go into number three, and I was in number three, uh, Friday after next. Right. So, you know, you're going for the audition. It's like anything you do, man. You're going for an audition. You're like, okay, what's going on? I don't know. Where were you in your life at this time? I was working in an advertising agency. So my, my story had gone where I had dropped out of grad school. I was going to get a PhD in, in political science. Right. I dropped out of that. I'd always done plays as a kid. I'd always wanted to do acting and comedy. But my parents, being immigrant parents, had kind of had kind of uh, uh, directed me in another in another direction. Doctors, engineers. Doctor, lawyer, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was going to be a lawyer. So that was kind of where I was headed. And then from there, I went to grad school and decided to get a PhD in poli-sci, so I was going to be a professor. Then I dropped out of that, and I said, you know what, i got to pursue this acting that I really wanted to do. So when I dropped out of grad school, I needed a job to pay my bills, so I got a job in advertising. Okay. So that's where I was when I first auditioned for Friday After Next. I was in an advertising agency. As a matter of fact, the ad agency I was in was folding because they were losing their clients. So eventually what happened was they folded, and one of the guys who worked in the ad agency went off and started working in another ad agency, and he goes, listen, we need a receptionist. You want to be a receptionist? I was like, sure, I don't care. So I'd be, I'd be in the front just answering calls. It was called Zentropy Partners. Zentropy Partners, can I, can I help you? Oh, you want whatever. Mike Dugan? Yeah, hold on. You know, you know, just, you know it was fine. I didn't mind. I, sure. was, you know, I wasn't a bitter guy. I was just in the front. Like, people would come in. I'm like, hey, what's up? In the meantime, I'm like, dude, I got like a, you know, a, a political science degree in, with a minor in Italian from UC Berkeley. I, I was going to be a, pol- a professor. I dropped out of that. Now I'm answering phones. Right. But in the low meantime, point, like low point or, or you? No, you know, I, I've been a pretty positive dude my whole life. So I don't I never saw it as a low point because I, I in, in the back of my mind, my father was a successful businessman and he instilled a lot of confidence in me. So no matter where I was in my life, I always felt like things were going to work out. Mm. So even though at that point my job was receptionist and I was probably making I don't know what they were paying me, but I'm guessing like I might have been making like mid-20s for the year, like 25 grand a sure. year. 
the good news was my mom lived in LA and I had been living with her because I'd been going to UCLA for grad school. Right. Then I had a girlfriend and I'd like be between my mom and my girlfriend. So I wasn't really paying rent. So I could afford right. I could afford that. Maybe <laughs> yeah. that's why I wasn't at a low point. People were paying my rent. I had sugar mommies. Um, no, but but the fact is that I still had, you know, I had my money coming in, I had my job, and I had, I'll tell you, I had decided to, I'd left the, the political science stuff, and I was doing some plays on the side just for fun. Ah, okay. So that was feeding my creative energy and my sure. soul. And, uh, and then I started auditioning, you know, and I was auditioning and auditioning, and then, and then when I got this, when I got Friday After Next, it was interesting because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be working with Ice Cube. And mm. at the time... You know, Cat Williams wasn't Cat Williams. Terry Crews wasn't Terry Crews. Cat, Terry, and I, it was our first time doing a big film. So we were the new kids in there. Unbelievable. And then John Witherspoon, God rest, rest his soul, he was, yeah. he, was, uh, he was there. And, and it, was, it was a great setup. And I was there for two weeks. And, of course, you make, you make, in two weeks, you make almost what you make for the year. So, so, so what is that set like? The I mean, set was is great. It hilarity. I mean, just I'll tell you when it was banter. really funny was when Cat was that. Cat was one of the funniest people is he? I've ever met. God, his stand up is legendary. His stand up, but also just in person. I just like because you know a lot of it. The beauty of what what Ice Cube does, I think, is smart. Is and whoever else produces, he's got Matt Alvarez as a producer with him. They they let uh, Marcus Rayboy was a director. They let the comedians improvise, mm. and it all starts with Mike Epps because they go, look, Mike's going to go off book. So if he goes off book, feel free to go off book. So we're like, all right. So, you know, you've learned your lines. You're an actor. you got your lines. Yeah. But you're also a comedian. Sure. So when Mike starts going off book, you start going off book. And the next thing you know, everyone's going off book. And then, like, Witherspoon's coming up to me. He's like, listen, man, I'm going to slap you. And he goes, feel free to slap me back. Yeah. Like, because there's that hit there. Their tagline for their barbecue store was, barbecue's so good, makes you want to slap your mama. <laughs> so when he comes into my store to tell me about the, the barbecue shop, he's like, listen, you know, so... He told me, he warned me, he's like, he's going to slap me. He goes, so I go, all right. And this is John Witherspoon. I sure. look up to the guy, you know? So he's like, hey, Molly, what's up? I'm like, hey, how are you, buddy? Whatever. And then he's like, it's like, yeah, the barbecue joint is doing great. But you, you heard about barbecue. Barbecue is so good. It makes you want to slap your mom. And he goes, and he smacks me. And I look at him and I go, and he slaps me again. I go, why you hit me, buddy? He goes, I don't know, man. And it was just silly and stupid and fun. But it had to be such a great time was it building your confidence along the way like were these guys who were are now titans yeah they were learned to respect you in this in this moment like yeah you know again again i don't think you think about it like that i think the thing about the confidence so you're right i think the thing about the confidence is very important because a lot of actors get into into it and you know being an actor you're a little bit you're in the uh um in the uh i will say in the what's what, what's what I'm looking for? Not in the in the top role. You're on the bottom role. In that, as an actor, you always think you got to please other people, from mm. your agent to the casting director to the director. You got you always feel like you're always walking on eggshells. Oh, these people got to like me. These right. people got to like me to give me the part. Da, 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 da. Very That's similar you, to an athlete. I I, I recognize that. Right. Yeah, yeah. But when you step back, like especially from from this where I'm at in my career now, 21 years later, you, I remind young actors. I go, no, they work for you. Especially your agents and managers, they work for you. Right now, the director and stuff—that's different. But then there's a way to approach that again, where you're coming from a confident place. Where if you go, look, I've done my work. This is what I have to offer to this role. Yeah. Now you show up with the director. You go, this is how I see it. 
And it might be right and it might not be right. And if you can get to that point in your mind, it's a lot, it's a lot easier said than done when you're first starting out. Because sure. in your mind, when you're first starting out, you're like, I want to please you. So, hey, Mr. Director, hey, Mrs. Director, what do you want in this character? I, I'm the guy, I can do this. But no, what they want is for you to bring your take, and your take might be either, it'll be either the right take or it'll be close enough where they go, I can work with this guy. Sure. So that's really what it is. So I think with Friday, they kind of gave us that freedom early on. It was so fun. It was kind of like when I did Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. It's another one of those where it's all improvised. And all they do in that is they go, here's, your, here's what's got to happen in this, in this scene. Okay. In this scene, Larry is going to um, give you, tick- oh, he's gonna, he's, you're going to fix his air conditioning. This is what I did. I was in like season five or something. You fix the air conditioning in his hotel and he doesn't tip you. So just hang out. Sure. You know, so I'm like, all right. So then it was just like this, you know, play the discomfort, right? You're like, all right. You know, I was playing an Indian Sikh at that. I was like, all right, you know, air conditioning's done, everything. Anything else? You need anything? He's like, no, I'm good. Thank you. I'm like, all right. Well, you know, I'm here. If you need me, I'm your guy. Okay. All righty. I'll be, you know, you want me to leave now, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? So you just play with that. Do these things just, it just comes. It's always been like that for you? It just comes. Listen, man, Wes, you know this. Like, people, everyone's wired differently. When I was in college, this lady gave me a book. It was called, like, The Seven Types of Intelligence or something. Okay. And it talked about how intelligence isn't just getting A's. Sure. Intelligence is, there's, there's artistic intelligence. There is, like, spatial intelligence. There is, you know, athletic intelligence. There's all kinds of things that we're all geared for. Right. So when you get a book like Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, um, uh, The 10,000 Hour Rule, the, uh, what's it called, um, Oh my God! It slipped my mind right now. But outliers. Outliers. Was no, was it? was it Outliers? Ten thousand hour rule. It was yeah. one of those. It was whatever. One of them. I forget right now, but uh, it was. Uh, it'll come to me. I think it was Outliers. When you get a book like that where he says, if you put ten thousand hours in on anything, you're going to be good. It talks about Tiger Woods, right? Sure. But you also got to be wired for that thing. Right. I can shoot baskets for ten thousand hours. I'm not making the NBA. Yeah. Right. But I was wired. I think at whatever age it was, I was wired to kind of perform. And I was confident about that. You talk a lot that. about Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy was a big inspiration as a kid. I'll be honest with you. So we came from Iran when I was six years old. We came from Iran. There was a revolution in Iran, late 70s. My father was on business in New York. And this is one of the things I would say about being an immigrant. I go, a lot of people that have anti-immigrant sentiment, I go, listen, a lot of immigrants aren't coming here voluntarily. They're coming because there's strife in their country. Mm. They're getting away. It's not right. like they're in a country where they're like, oh, uh, our business is good, economy's good, we're here where we have our family and we speak the language. Let's go to a foreign land where they don't know us and we know <laughs> right. we're gonna, you know, they don't so want fresh. us. So we were kind of in that, in that uh, uh, bucket and, and my um, dad was on business and he, and he told my mom to bring me and my sister out for a two-week break during our winter break. And I always say we came out for two weeks and we stayed for 41 years or whatever we're at now because the situation got worse and worse. And so when we first came from Iran to America, when I was in Iran, I was in a um, English-speaking school. So I would go half-day English, half-day Persian. Okay. So I already was learning English as a kid, right? So when I come to America, now I'm you know, surrounded by you know, cartoons and stuff, and I fell in love with American cartoons, and so I would watch hours and hours of cartoons. And so I think all that stuff maybe instilled some goofiness in me, like Bugs Bunny and Popeye of and whatever. Course. Classics. So all that stuff got me going. And then once I was like, I don't know what grade I was in, maybe fourth or fifth grade, that's when Eddie Murphy really hit the scene. 
And back then, before even Delirious, he had a tape called Comedian. And we used to put his tape in with my buddies, and we would listen to his tape. And so early on as a kid, you know, he was 19 when he ended up on Saturday Night Live. And I was like, I want to be like this guy. But I go, I want to get there even younger than him. So that's what I put in my head. And but how, what, how old were you at this time? I was probably like 10 years old. You had this ambition and this drive. I was like, yeah, I want, to be, I want to be Eddie Murphy. And I want to be, I want to be on Saturday Night Live before that. Because I was a big fan of Saturday Night Live. Back then, listen, I have kids now. You know, we have, we have t- uh, sleep, uh, sleep time, right? You got sure. to be in bed by 8, be asleep by 8.30, whatever. Back then, my parents, especially immigrant parents, they didn't seem to care. They were like, all right, go in your room. And I was in my room, I had a TV, and I'd be up till whatever hour it was. <laughs> so all that stuff led to me, I think, wanting to be that. But I think that the, my biggest obstacle were my parents. Mm. Because it wasn't that they were strict or they were mean. They loved me. They gave me a lot of positive stuff. But they also didn't know anything in terms of this world of you know performing. Right. They didn't know anything about the artistic world. All they knew was, like I said, standard lawyer, doctor, engineer, and what they all parents always want what's best for you, I think. Not always, but quite often. Sure. So a lot of times my kids go, oh, my parents said this, and then I go, listen, dude, they want what's best for you, but you really got to find what you love and then show to them you love it and then just go do it. Whether they support you or not, right. go do it. Right. So I had a couple of those moments in my life where my parents were like, don't do this, don't do this. And I was like, guys, I got to do this. And it wasn't like I was rebelling, going like, dad, you're an idiot. It was yeah. just like, I got to do this. So like when I went in, in college, I went to UC Berkeley and then I studied my junior year abroad in Italy. When I went to Italy, my mom didn't want me to go. And the reason was because my father had just gone back to Iran after 10 years in America. My dad, who had been a successful businessman, brought a lot of money to America, lost that money in bad real estate investments and was at a point where he needed to kind of find a way to get his business going again. So he had properties back in Iran. And at that time, the government of Iran had said, look, if you weren't related to the Shah or like in the Shah's you know, military or something, you can come back to Iran and get your business going again and we won't bother you. So my dad was like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to go start getting this, you know, work with these properties again. So he goes back and at that same time, he'd moved the family from Northern California to Southern California. So my mom was in Southern California in LA with my two younger brothers. And my sister and I were at Cal together. And that was my junior year. And, uh, and, and I said, and I'd been taking Italian. I'd been working my way towards going to study abroad for a year. And it takes a lot to get ready for that. Sure. And towards the time when it was time to go, my aunt, who lives in London, who's my mother's older sister, was on the phone with me constantly going, you can't leave your mother. She needs you now. Your father's left. You're the man of the house. You should, not only should you not go to Italy, you should transfer out of Berkeley and go to UCLA wow. and be with your mom. She needs you. And I was like, guys, I can't, I can't not do this. I said, I've, I've, I've already put a year and a half of language in. I've already done, you know, gotten all the, you know, uh, um, financial aid right, lined up, I, right. whatever I need to get done. I go, I got to go. And they were like, don't go, don't go. And my mom, remember when I first went, like those first few weeks, I think my mom was upset at me because sure. I remember like I would reach out and like she just wasn't as warm. Right. But then as I stayed and as the year went on, I realized I'd made the right decision and it ended up being one of the best years of my life. What'd you learn in Italy? I learned so much in Italy. First of all, I was far away from my family for the first time. I mean, already when I was a Cal, there was, you know, my sister was there with me, but like my, my family moved away, but it was still Cal. It was you know, you were, in, you were Northern California where I grew up, so I was familiar with Northern California. Here you go into a fully new 
land. Now, Italy, it's not like you're going to like, you know, Bangladesh or something. Right. But still, it's Italy. It's a different world. It's a different language. So you go there. The confidence you gain from speaking a new language, man. Sure. I was there. I was taking, you know, your classes are all in Italian. So I was there speaking Italian and I got, and I got fluent with it. I was like, I got A's in all the classes because I, I, I had an Italian girlfriend that helped a lot. Of course. But also I was really into it. I was reading books in Italian. I was reading plays in Italian. I was trying to, I was trying to find a play to do in Italian because I was like, I want to act. And um, the other thing that really opened my eyes was up until then, I'd spent most of my formative years in America. And when you grow up in America, you learn history from one angle. So you go to Italy, and they, these guys that you're you know, roommates with, we had like a big suite with a bunch of different, there was like five or six rooms, and there was different kids, and we'd all end up in the kitchen having conversations. And they start telling you, they go, oh yeah, after World War II, America came to Italy, and part of, part of what the U.S. influence was in Europe was that the U.S. said, we'll give you guys money if you guys uh, vote for what then for the, in Italy was called, they were called the Democratic Christians. And he goes, the reason they wanted the Democratic Christians was because Italy had all these different parties. One of the parties was the Communist Party. So this was the Cold War. So America didn't want wow. Italy to go communist. So America says to the Italians, we'll support you as long as you go democratic. Now, the reason the party became called Democratic Christian was because Italy is a Catholic country. Sure. And the leaders had realized if we put the name Christian on there... People will rally. People will rally. Whatever we say in church, they'll vote for it. Mm. So they voted for the Democratic Christians. Come to find out that that party in Italy ended up being the most corrupt party for like 40, 50 years. It's crazy. So you realize the influence that we have in these other parts of the world. Because like, America, we're taught to say, oh, America's always the best, the country's always the best, the government's always the best. No. We have dirty hands in a lot of countries. Sure, there's a great book I recommend always called uh, it's called the uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by a guy named John Perkins, and he talks about how the U.S. got involved in all these different countries. I mean, Iran was one of them. Iran, we had a democratically elected leader in 1953, right? And it's been already it's been uh, um, admitted by the CIA that they orchestrated a coup d'état to get rid of the democratic leader to put in the Shah. And then that led to years later leading to the Islamic Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. So this guy, John Perkins, in the book uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, he talks about how America has a system where the multinational companies, your Halliburtons, your uh, uh, Bechtels, all these countries, I mean, all these companies, they will be the first uh, foot in. They go into these countries right. and they go, look, we're this big, we're this big company we can help you get the electronic grid going or whatever, electric grid going. So hire us, give us these contracts, let us come do this. And we will get you a loan from the International Monetary uh, Fund or whatever to pay for it. So they get themselves paid. The money goes to this country, but the country obviously is usually run by a dictator. So he keeps the money. He doesn't give it to anybody. And then we end up in these, these situations, right? So, and, and in the book, he goes, if the, if the leader is somewhat has a little bit of integrity and goes, I don't want to play ball. He goes, then the CIA goes in and makes the leader disappear, like Allende, let's say, in Chile. Wow. Or in Iran with Mossadegh, that was the guy they overthrew. Right. And he goes, if they still don't play ball, then the military goes in, like with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? So it's very interesting. When you look at history from that perspective, you go, oh, my God. So you as a poli-sci major, being in Italy at this time, hearing this paradigm shift on the country that has really given you, you know, 
the, a, a life, yeah. right, and safety, so, so forth. How does that, after that year there, this maturation process, confidence, families now getting behind where you're going, momentum's building, but you've got to come back. Yeah. How are you feeling now about the culture uh, comparatively? Well, I will say, having being a uh, an, uh, someone who's Iranian-American hyphenated, right, I always was a little bit, I always tried to be skeptical of some of the stuff. I would say high school maybe a little bit less because in high school you don't question stuff. Sure. But once you go to college and you start taking some of these courses and they go, think critically. They really instill in you. They go, back then, this is before social media. This is 1989 when I was at Cal. So they go, when, even when you look at a newspaper, he goes, they say different newspapers cover the same news piece differently. So I did a couple of comparative papers where I was like, oh, this is how the San Francisco Chronicle covers it. Wow. This is how the Wall Street Journal covers it. Just look at the language they use, right? Like the language they'll say, sometimes they'll say like, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, right? So you right. look at things like that. So I started looking at that before I went to Italy. And matter of fact, in Italy, I took what, one, of the, one of those ideas, and, I, and, I, and in Italy they have, they don't just have right and left, they have right, left, center, they have all kinds of newspapers and stuff from all across the uh, spectrum. So... I did another comparative thing where I co- covered some news piece from these different point, points of views, and I was like, look at how these guys use it. This is... So I'd already started thinking like that, but going to Italy, I think, um, increased my confidence. And this is where, in Italy, what happened was, until Italy, I had been listening to my parents, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And that's why I studied political science, because I thought, okay, I study poli-sci, then whatever year it is, I got to you know, apply to grad school, I go, yeah. you know, get law school, and I'm on, you yeah. know. But I go to Italy, and there's this professor in political science, his name was Vincenzo Pace, they called him Enzo Pace, and this dude was almost like, it was almost like he was a uh, 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 a character from a movie, he had a goatee, he had like the blazer with like the patches. No way. Yeah, and he had a, he had a pocket watch, like one of these gold <laughs> pocket watches, and he would whip it out right before class started. And he was kind of, he was looking at the countdown to when the class started. So it wasn't like an electronic clock or anything. It was just like, he'd just look at it. And as soon as it, the, the clock would hit, whatever it was, the hour, he would just close it. He'd be like, allora. Allora means <laughs> so. You yeah. know, like, like, what are we going to talk about today? And the class was the sociology of religion. And I remember, I remember him saying, because in, in Italian, Muhammad, you know, one of the, we, we studied, you know, Catholic, Catholicism, we studied, uh, Islam, Judaism, whatever it was, but it's the sociology of religion. So when we're doing Islam, you know, Muhammad in, in, in Italian, they call him Mometto. So he, I remember him just going, you know, looking at the watch, closing, he goes, Allora, Mometto, like, so, Muhammad, like, let's discuss. Yeah, yeah. So it was this thing where I was like, this is cool, dude. I was like, this dude gets to pick a topic and learn about it, and then come talk about it and teach us. And I go, this is really neat. So that opened my eyes to saying, maybe I don't have to be a lawyer. Maybe I can be a professor. Mm. So suddenly I started thinking about that. So by the time, that's where I got gained the confidence, being away from my family, seeing this guy and saying, okay, here's a, an occupation where I think my family wanted, I think your parents want what's best for you in that they want you to have a a job that pays and you can make a living, right? That's why lawyer, doctor, and engineer is a great way to go. So my mind, I thought, okay, professor is a good compromise because it's a reputable job. My parents can be proud of me and say, our son, the professor. Right. And I think they pay pretty well. 
and I get to be in front of an audience. I go, this is a great compromise. So I come back to America, and at that point, my father's still in Iran, and I tell my mom, I go, hey, I'm gonna be a professor, and my mom just loses her mind. She's like, what really? are you talking about? Professors don't make good money. Like, and I'm like, how do you know what professors <laughs> make? You know, you don't, you're not a professor. She's like, no, no, you gotta be a lawyer. She's like, be a lawyer, and then you can do professor. So she was just, she was really set on this lawyer thing, because she thought, you know, probably she'd heard her friends' kids were lawyers and they're doing right. well and making decent money, whatever. So anyway, I just remember my mom would, we'd go to some parties with like family friends and, my, and they would all come in, you know, they'd go after me like, so your mother tells me you want to be a lawyer. You know, why lawyer? You know, I mean, I'm sorry, your mother tells me you want to be a professor. Why professor? You yeah, know, yeah. Professor is really hard. It's a hard road. I have a friend of mine who's a professor. He can't get a job. I was like, what is with everybody? Of course. But I stuck to it. So that's what I got out of Italy was I gained a lot of confidence. I think being away, I encourage everybody. I tell everybody, if you can go spend a year in another country, do it. It'll blow your mind. It opens your eyes. It sure. makes you go to the baker and get your food in another language. It makes you just, it makes you just, just, it just, and it opens your eyes. That it's a big world out there. Of course. And America is not just the only country. We are citizens of the world. That's why, again, in politics, when I hear some, some some leaders say, oh, America this, America that. I go, you, do you realize that by closing the border to lesser fortunate people, you're making it a poorer, you know, you're making them suffer more. And in the long run, that's going to come back and haunt us. Sure. You know, it's similar to what I hear a lot of people where they say, oh, lower my taxes, lower my taxes. I don't want to pay any taxes. I go, listen, I don't want to pay taxes either. I would love to get 100% of my salary and live large and be, you know, going around on boats and helicopters. Right. But the fact is, if I don't take some of my money and put it towards you know, some social programs, then that's gonna cause increased poverty, increased mental illness, and I'm gonna be walking home one night and some dude's gonna try and mug me and he might stab me, and what, where did that all come from? That came from me neglecting the fact that I'm not alone. It's a world. It's all, we're all connected, man, I love that. You know? Um, there's been some, I call them Rafiki moments, man. You uh -huh. know, super interested, you know, Lion King, one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Simba lost, yeah. trying to find himself and his identity again. Yeah. Rafiki, you know, the baboon. Yeah. <clears throat> reminds him to go go within. Yeah. And when he's looking within and down at the water, he sees his, his old man and reminds him like of his duty to, to go back home, the hero's journey. So yeah. these moments where when you start to fixate inside your mind of the next step, mm -hmm. the next vision. Yeah. Things, people, opportunities start coming. Yeah. Both positive and negative. Parents can be pulling you away from it. Yeah. But also doors can be opening on the other side. Absolutely. What happens here in this moment where like now you're moving towards a professor. Yeah. Or you have some Rafiki moments where a person comes in and gives you an opportunity. Yeah. Or like you get a stage a stage opportunity or a show that might, yeah. that that you know that maybe takes you to down a new path. What happens at this point? You know, it's kind of like what you said. It's like the book, The Alchemist, where it says when you do what you're supposed to do in life, uh, the world uh, conspires with you to kind of sure. make things happen. And it's amazing how it all kind of comes together. And I do feel like there's some clarity that comes when you f when you find what you love doing and you start doing it. And so there's a lot of moments like that. You know, so when I moved down to L.A. to get my degree in political science, there's still this thing in me that goes, you know, to get my PhD in poli-sci, there's still this bug in me that goes, I wanna act. Because when I was, so I didn't get a chance to do the stand-up, 
but I did get a chance to do plays. In high school, I was in a great theater department, so I was doing plays. I loved it. I was always alive on stage. Sure. My, my high school teacher, Michelle Swanson, told me, she said, you could do this professionally. There was another teacher in junior high school that, that was a director. Her name was Shirley Bombright. She was like, you're good. You know, everybody was telling me I'm good. Whenever I was on stage, people say, you're good. Yeah. You're alive. I did one, I took one acting class at UC Berkeley. And again, this guy, Graham, I forget his last name. He told me, he goes, you could do this professionally. And I didn't understand what that meant. Because it's not like, because acting isn't at all, there's no, there's no, I mean, you go to acting school, but it's not, you know, after, after, after law school, you go to a law firm. Sure. After medical school, you go work at a hospital. After acting school, you go become a waiter. <laughs> That's what it is. So I was like, I don't know. What do you do? Right, and, right. and especially with my family. But did he connect when they said it? Did he connect? Like, is there a piece of you that, that sort of knew it? I would always a... get excited. and go, oh, yeah. this is great. This is great. But I was like, now what? I don't know what to do. So, right. and again, I didn't have anybody in my family who was like, you know, a Yoda type going, listen, son. I did never pursue my dreams. You should pursue your dreams. Because mm-hmm. everyone in my family was like, all right, so when uh, this crazy stuff you got in mind is over, you know, you know, back to law school, you know, right. whatever it was. Yeah. So when I go down to L.A., I got down to L.A. Um, oh, and by the way, I did one stand-up. I did one stand-up thing where the summer of my senior year, I, I did one extra semester at Cal so that I could do an honors thesis. And so the summer before that, I ended up doing a couple of open mics, just to stand up. And again, I loved it. But then I didn't know what to do with it after that. Right. And like the advice I give comedians now is I say, you gotta get on stage five to 10 times a week. Wow. And do that for five to 10 years and you'll be good. Um, hopefully, again, if you're wired for it. Sure. But back then I didn't know. I didn't know that's what it was. I thought like, oh, you're going to go do it. And then by the fifth time, someone will discover you and you become a star. Sure. But no, no, it's a long, long thing. So I did like two or three open mics and I never, never continued, just set it aside. Matter of fact, one of the people that took me out to do the open mic, her name is Alex Borstein. She's now on the, the TV show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She plays Mrs. Maisel's agent and she just won an Emmy Award and she's a talented actress and comedian, but... She was kind of somebody who I was like, whenever I see her succeed, I was like, oh, that's my buddy. Yeah, I gotta do that, yeah. you know? So she was inspirational in that way. Um, but I go, I go down to UCLA to get to go into grad school. And here's what happened was I got down to UCLA end of 1993. And school didn't start, my, my, my graduate program didn't start until September of 94. So I had January 94 until September 94 to just work and hang out. Right. And I got jobs, just odd jobs. I was tutoring. Um, we had a family friend who was working at a stationery store, you know, make copies and stuff. So I was like making copies, working the, there's a big uh, printer printer cutter that like cuts, you know, tons yeah. of paper. Yeah. So like it cut your hands, right? So sure. I was doing that kind of job. I was just doing whatever jobs I could get. In the meantime, I was like, all right, what am I going to do? I go, well, I got like nine months in L.A. I go, let me do some plays. No, no harm, no foul, right? Sure. My mom's not going to get upset at me doing a play. I'm, I'm working, and grad school's coming. So I was like still on the path, but I had nine months to play around. Right. So back then, they had a thing called the Backstage West. It was a newspaper, and you would look it up, and you would, it would find whatever projects they got in the back. And uh, you'd, you'd send out a headshot. So I got some headshots made, sent out headshots. 
there was this dude in a place called Tahunga, which is an hour north of LA. And the dude ended up being this big charlatan. He was this kind of creepy dude. Right. He had gone and found a space that had like, maybe it was like a 20 seat or 30 seat theater. And he would put on these plays that he would write. He would just churn them out. And they were all really poorly done. But what he would do is he would double cast it because he knew there was a lot of hungry actors in Los Angeles. So he would, he would do the, the, the plays would have like 12 characters. He would double cast it. So now he's got 24 actors. And he knew that all these actors would bring their family and friends to come see them. And then he would charge the family and friends so he'd make his money that way. Right. So he would fill seats that way. It was out in the boondocks. And the dude ended up like later on, he was some creepy dude that like, I think somebody said like he ended up being in like on one of these like Jerry Springer's or something. <laughs> like somebody was like, yeah, man, whatever the guy's name was. John was on Jerry Springer. I go, what? He's like, yeah, man, he's on it because like he was being accused of like trying to molest some actresses or no some weird, way. yeah, weird stuff. No way. Some weird stuff. <laughs> but this dude at least was giving us a chance to act. Sure. And I didn't care, man. I was like, this is great. I'm going to do plays. So I would drive, you know, do my work, drive an hour, go do the plays. Meanwhile, I was like, I want to write a play. So I started writing a play. And I told this guy, I go, listen, I want to write a play. And do you think I could use your space? He's like, not only can you use my space, but he goes, I want you to put an ad in the Backstage West right now with the characters. I go, the play's not written. He goes, don't worry about it. Just put the ad in the Backstage West that you're casting. Let's get the casting process going and keep writing. And I was like, all right, dude, I put an ad in the Backstage West. Here's the roles I'm casting. I get this, like, headshots, this many headshots just piled, like, hundreds and hundreds Amazing. of headshots. Every one of them with a note. Mr. Jobrani, it would be an honor to work with you. I, I'm looking for, I'm nobody. Nobody knows who I am. These, this is how desperate actors are. Sure. I've been looking for this role my whole life. I can't wait. Please put me in your play. I don't even have a play. But they're yeah. like, they want to do the play. And I was like, oh, my God. This is, this is a jungle. Rafiki moment. Man. Rafiki moment. I'm like, this is crazy. And I was like, and it, and it probably like intimidated me a little bit where sure. I was like, maybe I should stick to my play, you know, my, my PhD, man. Like, Let's play easy. Here. This is yeah. a jungle. Like right. this is me not being anybody getting all these headshots. Imagine like a real thing. I mean, so I just kept doing those plays and I was intimidated all of a sudden by like pursuing the acting even more. And I was like, let me just go get my PhD. So I go to get the PhD. While I'm getting a PhD, I go, you know what? Now that I'm in a secure place, it felt comfortable. I go, let me see if there's a play at UCLA that I can do. That's not out in the Hollywood right. world. This is UCLA. It's a little more limited. I go, I audition for the main stage play. The main stage play is directed by the MFA students. These guys have spent four or five years becoming directors. Then they get their master's in directing. And this is the play that they do that's like the big play that all the actors that are in the undergraduate program are trying to be cast in. I go audition. I'm not even in the undergraduate pro I'm not even in the theater program. I go audition. I get the part. So now I'm one of the guys, like all the actors, all the acting students are like, who's this idiot? Like, where'd this guy come from? <laughs> but I'm on there and I'm doing it and I'm killing it. Right. And again, there's this, this, this guy who's a, he's a playwriting teacher at UCLA. His name was Gary Gardner. He sees the play. He's a very flamboyant gay guy. He comes up to me afterwards, like, afterwards and he knows all the kids who are in the undergraduate program, but he doesn't know me. He comes backstage, he's like, guys, what a great play. You guys all did great. And he goes, and who are you? And I was like, oh, I'm Maz. And he's like, you are great. Oh, my God. Why are you in the pro? Why haven't I seen you? Are you in the, 
I go, no, I'm not. In, I'm in the PhD program. He's like, what? What are you doing in the PhD program? <laughs> Uh, you know, I just and he's like, you, you know, you got again. It was one of those you got something moments. Yeah, yeah. So he was another one of these guys. I started talking to Gary and like, and what would happen is, by day I would go to the poli sci classes, and the discussions in poli sci always were, what's the role of a political scientist? And the teacher would always say, it's publish or perish. So you either got you got to come up with a theory, write a book about it, go around the world and defend it, or you're not going to make it as a political scientist. And if you're lucky, a, a politician will read your book, want to use your theory. and you, So really, we lived in a theoretical world. And in the meantime, at night, I would go do, I would go rehearse my play, and I was alive. I was on stage. I was having mm. a blast. So again, I got discouraged from the poli-sci stuff, thank God. And I yeah. got, got into this world. And it was, I remember this night, because I was living at my mom's house in Westwood. It was like a 10-minute bike ride to UCLA. This is when UCLA won the NBA, uh, the, the NC2A championships. Uh, they were number one that year, 1994. So I was at UCLA that year. And I remember I was kept saying to myself, what am I doing? Am, am I, do I want to be a poly, political scientist? Like, this acting thing is the thing. And I'm talking to Gary. I was like, Gary, I want to do this. He's like, listen, you got to go pursue it, blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe take some acting classes outside of UCLA. Just go for it. And there was a paper I had to write. It was a five-page paper in political science. And I remember the night before, I'd done all the reading. And I'm sitting at my laptop in the dining room in my mom's condo in Westwood. And it's midnight. And I'm getting ready to type this paper. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, ah, really, I'm not into this. And I swear to God, dude, I just closed the laptop and this weight just went off my shoulders. That's wild. And I was like, I don't have to do this. Yeah. I was like, why this am I doing this? And I went to my teachers the next day and I was like, listen, I'm dropping out this and that. Mm. And a lot of them were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Because now you have yeah, doubts yeah, again, yeah, like yeah, I think. Yeah. And here's what was interesting was when I did that play that first quarter at UCLA, there was another MFA student, Alyssa, and I forget her name, Alyssa Weiss maybe. She was directing the MFA play in the spring quarter. So at UCLA, you had fall, winter, spring, summer. So she saw me in the fall program. So she came up to me and she goes, listen, I'm doing something in the, in the spring. I think you'd be perfect for it. I want you to do it. So here I am ready to drop out in the fall. But in order to do her play, I just started masquerading and saying, you know what, I'm staying in the program, uh, but I'm gonna hang out. And I was just hanging out to get to the play. So what I would do is just, I would go to class once in a while, poli-sci classes, yeah. but I wasn't completing my papers. I was taking incompletes, because I really was like, I don't wanna do this. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, what was interesting was, by the time I got here in the spring, did the play, done, I'd accrued a few incompletes. And years later, when I dropped out and I was like already doing a professional comedy and all that stuff, I had a couple of times where I would have nightmares and I would, I had nightmares that I had, that I'd gotten F's on my papers and I was confronted by my professors of poli sci and no I, way. and I, and I had to write these papers and I would wake up and I was like, oh my God, I got to get the paper done. And I was like, wait a minute. No, you're a comedian. You don't have to write any papers. Yeah. You don't have to write anything. <laughs> That's reality. It was so good, man. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Pivot. These yeah. pivot stories are, are huge, man. I can remember when I uh, when I fought so hard to come back from the injury, got it, got my career back on track. It took 16 months, and I got back into the locker room, 
and it just the lust and the love for the game for the game was gone. Yeah, like it was a chore. Yeah, and there was this massive expansion inside my mind for what's next. Yeah, right. And, and over time, you start finding some things, learning more about yourself, and finding yeah. things right. And then you find a pivot point where you get the confidence and you take off. Yeah. So when when you do jump though, it's exhilarating. It is. And you're going through. It's it's like this fall. And you're waiting for your wins and you're following the, the the crumbs. Yeah. How do you how do you get it? How do you get now? into full-on acting and when do you get your real first break well i think you hit on something you gotta be you gotta be open to change yeah you gotta be malleable you gotta be ready for it you know um i was talking to this uh psychologist this uh, therapist lately recently and she was talking about she said um you need to tolerate the uncertainties Mm. that's an interesting thing because there's going to be uncertainties all throughout your life from the small to the big, right? All of a sudden, traffic, you didn't expect it. Sure. So now if you're going to be lose your mind every time something happens that throws you off, you're going to have a hard time in life, yep. right? But if you sit there and go, well, it's tra- I can't do anything. I'm, I'm in the middle of traffic, and I'm going to miss that appointment, or I'm going to be late, and that's it, you know? There so was- fundamentally, in, the, in, those, in this time, what's the difference between, Maz, at that, at that point in your life where you're hungry and you want the opportunities, and, and you're 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 grinding to keep yourself focused on it, and ho- you know, uncertain. And now the Maz who well, twenty one years later. Well, at that point, you know, in your early in your late teens, early twenties, you're looking for what am I going to do the rest of my life? You know, you lose. We lose people because they get lost. Mm-hmm. You know, I think through all the way through graduation of high school, you're being told. You have a test coming up. You have to do this. This is what it is. Even if you're not into it, you got to get ready for it. Sure. Even if you're losing it, your parents will be on you. Your school will be on you. We're going to suspend you, right? We're going to send you to another school. And at that school, there's going to be somebody who's going to be like, look, you got to take this test. Right. You finish high school, and if you don't go to college, you're in a world now where nobody, there's nobody. There's nothing. You don't have to do anything. So I have friends who, you know, they had, there was also mental, mental illness happening, but they, they, they were lost. They were like, what am I going to do? And so I think all of us in our late teens, early 20s, I'm always inspired by young people who go, they're like 15 and they go, yeah, I want to be a whatever, X, right. Y, and Z. Right. I want to be a zoologist. I go, really? How'd you come about that? I've been, play, you know, I've been, you know, in the animals since I was a kid. And, oh, wow! I go, that's so. I'm so happy for those people that find their passion so young. Early. And for the people who don't find their passion, I go, what is it that you like to do as a kid? What is it that you used to do mm. when you didn't need to get paid to do it? If it's soccer, okay, find a way to get into the world of soccer. Maybe you're not going to be a professional soccer player, but maybe you can go and be a uh, a sportscaster. Maybe you can go work as I don't know, the water boy, whatever it is, sure. be around it right? because you'll be alive. So I think the difference is when I was at that age, I, you know, in my mid-20s at that point, I still had not necessarily had, because I'd had so much resistance for doing what I love doing and still, and because I had so much um, insecurities as to how do you do it. I mean, at one point what I did was, as when I was 17 years old, I'd fi- I was I tried to find ways to get into this acting comedy world, again with like a toe in the water kind of way. Right. So what happened was, matter of fact, I had a dis- I had a conversation with Aziz Ansari. 
I don't know him that well, but I ran into He's him. He's a South Carolina guy. Yeah, I yeah. ran into him, and I, I and, and we had a conversation. I was like, holy moly, I had a similar experience to him in that he, uh, you know, he had immigrant parents, I had immigrant parents, and then I guess he went to NYU and studied, like, business or something, and while he was there, he got into the acting and the comedy. Well, when I was undergrad, when I was in high school, uh, we our, our theater program was really good, and they were t- encouraging us if they said if you want to if you want to apply to an acting school, we're helping you by you know filling it, you know doing auditions, sending it off. And I just wasn't organized enough, so I did the auditions, sent them off, and I thought to, my, to myself, I thought, look, if I get into some acting program that's prestigious, maybe I can go to my parents and go, hey, look. Right. I got into this great acting program. Well, I don't think either I didn't get into any of them or, or I just didn't get it all organized. But what I did do was I applied to NYU because I knew that New York had a great acting program. And I thought to myself, if I can get into NYU, and I applied as a business undergrad, I go, if I can get into NYU, maybe I, then I could sneak into the theater department and start doing plays. This yeah. is when I was 17. And as a matter of fact... I got into NYU in, in the business program, and I convinced my dad to, you know, let me go for a weekend to go visit NYU. I, I used to play soccer in, in, in yeah. high school, so I was like, I'm going to go meet with the soccer team. Let me go check this all out. So I went to NYU for a weekend, and I checked it out. In the, my mind going, this is when I was 17, in my mind going, okay, maybe I'll go to NYU, and then I can just start doing the acting thing without my parents knowing they'll be on the other side of the country. When I went to New York for that weekend, I go, oh my God, it's expensive. Sure. It's this other world. I'm 17 years old. I don't have the confidence to take this dive into this, this world. Big, yeah. So I went back home and I went to Cal and I did the poli sci stuff. So that's when I was 17. Then when I go to grad school and this teacher, Gary Gardner, is encouraging me and I'm on stage and I'm alive, I feel good about it. And I go, you know what? I'm going to drop out of grad school. This is what I'm going to go do acting. And now I'm in my early 20s and I've already gone to Italy and the confidence is, you see the confidence is building more and more. Right. I'm getting ready to stand up to my parents more and more. And when I tell my mom I want to gra- drop out of grad school, she goes, are you crazy? She goes, you didn't become a lawyer. You didn't become a professor. <laughs> yeah. And then she goes, you want to be an actor? She goes, what is that? She goes, at least become a mechanic. <laughs> I go, how'd you go from lawyer to mechanic? She goes, people need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor. I go, you know what? You kind of you got a point. You got a point. Good nobody point, nobody really point. does need an actor. <laughs> but you know, your car breaks down. The mechanic's going to fix it. And I realized in retrospect now, again, my mom had come from a country where they had a revolution. Her life got turned upside down when sure. she was in her mid-30s or whatever it was. And I go, when you have come from that mentality in your back of your mind, you're always thinking a revolution is coming. At some point, your life could be turned upside down. Right. So you better have a skill. Mm. And my mom said, you better have a skill. She wanted me to be a mechanic for that. But I said, mom, that's not my thing. That's not my cup of tea. So what I did was I dropped out of grad school and I went and I started to audition again. And I said, now I need a job. So I got a day job in an advertising agency. Again, in my mind, even though I'm diving in, I still have this thing where I go, safety. I have a job that's a yeah. safety net. And also I thought to myself, listen, if this acting thing doesn't work out, advertising is a great compromise because maybe I can become a copywriter. So I'm in this world of being creative, but I'm also getting paid. So that became, like again, I've always, I always had like these parallel goals going. Sure. Because part of it was like the pipe dream and part of it was like, here's the, here's the paycheck. Yeah. So, you know, ad agency got me my health insurance. I had a paycheck. I had a job. And it's funny because I, 
the first day I went to the ad agency, I dressed up in a suit. I was an assistant in the ad agency, dressed up in a suit. I go there. They start introducing me to everybody. And as I'm being introduced, a lot of the young people were like, hey, man, welcome to the ad agency. Uh, you don't need a tie. Lose the tie. I was like, oh, okay. So the next day I go back like without a tie. And my mom, again, being you know traditional, she's like, why don't these people wear ties? What's wrong with them? <laughs> I'm like, they don't wear ties. She's like, ah, Americans. What's wrong with them? You know. So I was doing that. And again, like you said, you know, this, the world conspires with you. Along the way, I met a guy, a fr- uh, this friend of mine, like was like an acquaintance. He's like, hey, we're doing a play in the Persian community in Los Angeles. LA has the biggest Persian community outside of Iran. Mm. And this guy was Iranian-American. He goes, we're doing this play, and I know you do some acting. Do you want to be involved? I go, sure. So I go, get involved. Next thing you know, this play becomes a hit. It was the first time anyone had ever done a play in English for the Iranian community in Los Angeles. Got it. So the play is huge. We're selling out 1,000 seats. People are paying like 100 bucks a ticket. It's just killing it. And I'm, and I'm alive on stage, man. Yeah, man. Every time I'm on stage, I'm alive. And so I'm doing it, doing it, doing the play. We travel with the play a little bit. And fast forward to a couple of years later, I'm in another advertising agency. There's this pull in my mind, you know, I'm like, oh God, I'm in the ad agency. I'm an assistant. It's, you know, it's my mom's happy. Sure. I got a job. I got a health insurance. But when I do this play, I really love it. I want to do this play. And there was a guy in the ad agency. His name was Joe Ryan. He was an older guy. He was a producer at the ad agency. And Joe was just this positive guy. Anyone he saw, was, he was positive with. So he sees me in the edit bay of the ad agency. I'm making dubs. Back then we had VHS tapes. Yeah. I'm making dubs of the tape of the play for the other actors so I could give it to them. So Joe walks into the edit bay and he's behind me and he's watching me do this play and it's in English and he goes hey you're funny man have you ever thought about doing this and I go Joe thought about it in high school decided not to do it thought about it in college decided not to do it dropped out of grad school decided not to do it I go so I got this strategy Joe I'm in the ad agency right now I'm 26 years old I'm going to work four more years in advertising get to a point where I become a freelance copywriter because I know as a freelance copywriter you can make pretty good money I said, at that point, what I'm going to do, Joe, is I'm going to work half the year, make good money, and then audition the other half of the year. And he goes, let me talk to you, man. He takes me into his room. He goes, listen, I'm in my 60s right now. He goes, when I was in my 20s, there were some things I wanted to do. And he goes, to be honest with you, I never got around to doing them. And he goes, I regret that. He goes, if you really love doing this, you got to do it. Rafiki, man. Rafiki, big time. He was my Rafiki. I love that. Light bulb moment. I love that. So let's talk about that. Yeah. How does that shift? professor, a teacher, obviously. Yeah. How does that shift your approach with how you raise your kids and point them and, and, and mentor them and, and give them the confidence that your dad instilled in, yeah. in you yeah. and, and continue that, yeah. but also allow them to, to learn more about themselves and what they love and so on. Man. Absolutely. I have been a big proponent, not just with my own kids, but now even on stage, I, I towards the end of my show, I encourage people. I go, guys, let your kids do what they love doing. If they find it, let them do it. If they haven't found it, help them find it. And I go, mm. not only your kids, I go, you yourselves. I know there's some of you in your 40s and 50s, you're like, I've always wanted to skydive. Go skydive. Yeah. You know, and it's like, 
I, I say, I go, I go, when I first started doing this, I had to rebel against my dad, I rebelled against my mom, and I rebelled against the community because the community didn't want this. Sure. So I jokingly, I say, you know, I, I could hear the people talking behind our backs going like, did you hear about Jobrani's son? He's almost a drug dealer, you know, because <laughs> that's what comedy was to them. They didn't know it. You know, there's, yeah. we come from the Persian community is very formal. Like a lot of there's, it's like Indians are very, there's respect is big. You know, you're not supposed to be a clown. You're not supposed to make fun of people. Right. But here I am now years later in the community, like can't stop giving me love because sure. they're like, oh my God, because, because why? Because I'm just doing my truth. You know what I'm saying? And so I say that to my kids all the time. I go, if you find what you, I, I encourage them anytime, anywhere. How are you working on their self-talk? What, Listen, you know? all the time, whatever comes up, I'll, I'll make a, take a moment. I'm sure they're sick of me talking, but sometimes I'll be like, you know, we were, we were, we were driving and uh, there was a big billboard for this guy. Uh, is it Robert Foster? I forget his name. He's a, he's a, he's a composer. He, he, he's written a ton of songs. And he was performing at a casino somewhere in LA. And his, you know, was up there. And the kids were like, who's that? I go, oh, that guy is a prolific music composer. And I go, guys, you know what's amazing in life? I go, no matter what you do, try and do something where you are a creator. Mm. I go, be the creator. I go, because that guy wrote a lot of the songs you've heard. Now he's gonna go sing those songs in a concert. And I go, he's getting paid all the time. Anytime. Your Ariana Grandes or whoever he's written songs for, when they sing, he gets paid. So I go, guys, if you can, be the songwriter, be the screenwriter, mm. be the architect, be the uh, founder of the company, be the uh, be the you know Microsoft guy, whatever whatever field you want to go for, yeah. be the creator because I go, then you control what you do. So I've been trying to encourage them to find that, and as a matter of fact. My daughter once in a while will surprise me with this stuff. She keeps coming up with business ideas. She came up to me, and anytime she comes up with an idea, I'm 100% behind her. Like, yeah. I don't feel like I'm spoiling her or anything. She did this thing recently where she's eight and a half. She and her friends decided to put a little like group together. I don't know if it was a band or a group. I don't know what it was, but it was like, she was like, Daddy, I want to make t shirts for our group. I go, All right, baby, you go, go find the design and make it. So she goes online. She goes on some page and she finds these designs with like rain. It was kind of like the Rainbow Girls or something, and she puts the Rainbow Girl logo. And then she finds like she's you know my wife's Indian, so our kids are half half Persian, half Indian, so they're a little darker. So she finds like a dark skin little emoji. <laughs> then, then one of her friends is like a black you know, African American girl finds that white girl that she puts all four together, no and she gives it to me. She's like, all right, that's the shirt, and I and I go, I got a T-shirt, I'll get it made for you, and so. I went out of my way because the deadline was like the last day of school we had to get this. And it was going to cost me more. Sure. And the guy who did the design messed it up because my daughter in the interim added a fifth friend. And the guy gave me, he sent me the shirts with the four friends. And I go, dude, I can't give this to my daughter because that fifth friend is going to be upset. Right. So I literally, the last day of school, because I was so, I wanted to encourage her and show her that you put your mind to it. And this comes through. Right. The last day of her school this past year, it, it, I had to like jump. I, I drove like an, two hours out of my way, driving around Los Angeles, going to like way deep valley to pick up five T-shirts to get to her school before 1230. It was a short day sure. because it was the last day of school. To get it to 1230, get it to her so she could get it to her friends and I just like zoomed up. My wife's there with her. My daughter's like, like, you got the shirt. Right, I got right, the right. shirts, baby. 
And I did it because I wanted her to know, you put your mind to it, mm. you can do it. And she did that. She recently wrote a book with some of her friends, like just a little comedy book. Wow. Go for it. My son, one of my favorite things, and I got my nephew too. I, do, I talk to all of them. Whenever My nephew's a filmmaker. I go, dude, keep making your films. My son, one weekend, you know, people always talk about video games, right? Look, we're all, we, we, I don't mind sitting there brain dead and doing crap, right? Right. And I feel bad. Like a lot of times my wife and I were pretty hardcore with my son. No video games, no video games. But I'll be honest with you, man. One weekend we're like, guys, no screen time. Just figure something out. We have an upstairs and a downstairs. As the, as the weekend's going on, we start seeing boxes being taped together. And we're like, I'm like, what are they doing? They created this, just this little like mechanism that went, ran up the stairs, started with like a shoebox, and you put a ping pong ball in it, and it goes into like a toilet paper, you know, not yeah. toilet, a, a, a paper towel roll, and it goes into another roll, another roll, and it just, it was this slalom course for ping pong, and it just went all the way down no our staircase. Way. And I go, this is awesome, guys. Sure. So whenever they do things like that, I just reiterate. I go, I don't care about your grades. I don't care about, I mean, I do, but I don't, because that's not what it's about. You know, you get straight A's. That doesn't, that doesn't, sure. great. That doesn't, I mean, but when you do something outside the box, you know, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, it's interesting because you also got to be careful what you put on them. Because my son now at 11, I'm learning a lot. You learn a lot as a parent because you go, oh my God, there's different phases. You learn about when you were a kid. So when they hit around 11, 12, their brains start rewiring and the amygdala starts going crazy, right? right? And the frontal lobe isn't developed. So the amygdala is going crazy. All of a sudden, my son, who his whole life had not had this, all of a sudden he's like scared to go into the room because the lights aren't on and yeah, you know, yeah. the fear. Sure. So we were walking. We were, I forget where we were. We were, we were I think we were on a trip and he was kind of, I think it was kind of a, he was, he was just in a, in a hard place because the wiring was going nuts. And he was just being hard on himself. I go, what's wrong, buddy? He's like, daddy, I haven't found my passion. And I was like, buddy, you're 11 years old. You don't have to find your passion yet. I go, I want you to experiment. I want you to figure it out. But he had taken that on as like, why haven't I found my passion? And I tell him, guys, first of all, don't compare yourselves with anybody. You watch sure. America's Got Talent and a little eight-year-old comes out and sings opera. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, and be ready to shift. That 11-year-old who's singing opera and killing it right now, in four years from now, she might be like, I am sick of opera. Right. I got to do something else. And if she, and if she, you know, and if, People are on her going like, no, you need to stick to opera. That's going to lead to a nice drug addict for you. <laughs> I'm serious. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, the self-talk is huge. I, I, I love that you're learning so much um, and, and putting so much emphasis on them to be able to be free and to experience and have exposure, obviously, getting them more and more exposure. Rounding this thing out, man. We'd love to ask a couple fire, hot round, quick questions, sure. quick answers. Uh, this has been, man, this has been such a blessing to be able to spend this time and learn. Thanks, man. Learn I appreciate you having me. What, a, what an awesome journey, man. Thank you. Um, first question. Best actor you've been around. Best comedian. Best actor. Most fun. You're most connected with. Oh, gosh. I mean, I've, I've been lucky to, to, to be around a lot of good people man and, and look they all have their own strengths like i did i was in the interpreter which was sean penn nicole kidman directed by Sidney pollack and just watching sean penn work reminded me of what an actor's got to do like I, I just remember watching him kind of work through as an actor you got to work through what was happening before this scene what was i doing right before i got in here 
So I saw him doing that. Like, and, and as an actor, you know, when you get into it, sometimes you can be lazy mm. and you forget about that. And I was like, oh man, Sean Penn's doing the work. Like, I got to do the work. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? For sure. So you got somebody like that. Then you got, like I was saying, Cat Williams on Friday After Next, just one of the funniest human beings, one of the sweetest dudes. I mean, he was, I loved working in scenes with him because I was like, I, I want to see what he's saying before, after, and yeah. during, you know? Um, I mean, I've just been really blessed. I've just, I mean, recently I was on this uh, TV show called Superior Donuts, mm -hmm. and that gave us a lot of downtime because it was a multicam. So you rehearse three, four days, and then you shoot one day. And so I'm sitting on set talking to Katie Seagal from, you know, Married with Children from yep. uh, Sons of Anarchy. And what a deep human being, and what a like, nurturing human being and some of the best conversations. I just wow. loved her. Then you got Judd Hirsch, TV legend from Taxi. Yeah, yeah. You know, telling you stories from back in the day, just being sweet. I mean, <clears throat> I'm just, you know, I, I pinch myself all the time. Unbelievable. You know, I mean, it's and again, that just goes to, you know, just put yourself in the right, you know, put yourself where you got to be because then you're also around like-minded people. Right. One of my favorite things to do is to just be in a green room with comedians. Sometimes there's comedians I don't know. Just the other night I was in uh, New York City, did a, did a set. I'm walking out. This young comedian starts walking with me. And uh, he says, yeah, I'm from Uganda. I've been here in, uh, in New York doing comedy, this, that, the other. I don't even remember his name right now. Kenneth, I think. And we just talked for 20 minutes, walking the streets of New York. And then he's like, I'll oh, see you later, see you later. But it was just shop talk. Yeah. I mean, I love it. So, you know, it's uh What a blessing, a blessing. So many yeah. individuals you've, you've gotten to be around. Yeah. Um, where are you headed next? Where's your vision set on right now? What's, what's important to you? You know, as you grow older, a couple of things happen. First of all, your bones start to slow down a little bit. <laughs> Secondly, you know, especially having kids and stuff, you go, okay, this rock, rock and roll lifestyle of traveling around the world, it's, it's got to slow down. It's gotta, I got to get to a point where I can make a living out of it, Los Angeles, because I don't want to be 60 years old and having to tour. Sure. I want to be 60 and be able to go, hey, you know what, guys? I want Let's go out on the road for a little bit, do a few cities and come back. So I've really been trying to focus my energies into, first of all, I'm developing right now. I'm developing a TV show, fingers crossed, that's based on my life that would be, you know, a show on air. Right. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard because, first of all, it's hard to get to air. Secondly, you hope people watch it, so it's hard to stay on air. But if you're lucky enough to get there, that's another one of those blessings. So I'm really trying to work that. I'm also working on an animation uh, show that uh, that we're, it's basically like the Munsters, but with immigrants. This immigrant yeah. family moves to America. They love America. America doesn't love them back. So that's also being developed. So those are two current projects that are being developed. Right. In the meantime, I've been talking to my reps about, hey, listen, let's hope these things go and whether they go or not, let's try and find ways for me to maybe get into writer's rooms in L.A. so that sure. I can have some work in L.A. So that's kind of what I'm hoping. And I'm hoping to be at a point in the next five, ten years where I am producing things and I'm able to bring in young talent and expose them to Platform the world. Them. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Because my thing keeps going and, and hopefully I can keep I can, hopefully I can keep doing my, my comedy. I mean, I, I love I still love doing comedy. I still love even when I'm in LA, I get on stage at the comedy store in the Laugh Factory, you know, three, four times mm -hmm. a week at least. 
work out new material. It's a therapeutic thing for me. It really is. I get to go up. I get to be away from like, you know, family life is one thing. It's beautiful, but it can also get exhausting. Sure. So after you've spent a long day with the kids and then my wife's tired, she wants to go to sleep. I'm like, hey, I'm going to the club. So I hope to keep doing that, but I hope to be able to produce as well. You continue to expand, man. Yeah. You're in, the, you're in the, the legacy phase now. Yeah, exactly. I love that you're still touring, man. Still passionate. Still purposeful. Yeah. Biggest question, though, man. I know you're a Cowboys fan. Yeah. Are you ready to admit Christian McCaffrey's a a better (laughs) running back than Ezekiel Elliott? I will tell you something, man. I am no longer as into sports as I used to be. Yeah. So I grew up a Cowboys fan. I'm like old school Tony Dorsett. Yeah. You know, Danny White, Tom Landry. And I'll be honest, when when Jerry Jones came in and, and fired Tom Landry the way he fired Tom Landry... You dropped the Cowboys. It really just, for me, it was like an eye-opening moment. I was like, oh, my God, it's a business. Mm. It's not about loyalty. I was like, how do you fire Tom Landry like that? (laughs) And so right off the bat, I started to kind of decrease my enjoyment, definitely of the Cowboys. Sure. And now I find different things that will draw me to different teams or different players. Like Jared Goff. I went to Cal. Cal football for me is kind of what I watch. So Jared Goff went to Cal. Is Aaron Rodgers a GOAT? Aaron Rodgers. Is he bigger than Tom Brady in your opinion? Well, I got, you know, Tom Brady is something, you know, you got to admit it. The guy's, I mean, it's (sighs) proof is in the pudding. The guy's a machine. That's right. You know, he's from the Bay Area too, but he just ended up on the wrong teams. But anyway, (laughs) it's just, it's a thing where it's like, I still have a handful of teams that I root for. I just don't follow it as much. Sure. Oakland A's have always been my team. Still my team. Can I name a few players? Probably not right now because I just watch them whenever I can, you know. Sure. Lakers used to be my team when it was Magic. Now, again, they're exciting. I'm getting ready to watch it. Playoffs, I watch a lot. Of course. And, and I'll be honest with you, with Dak, uh, I got a little upset with Dak because I, when, he, when I heard him criticizing Colin Kaepernick, I was like, oh, man, you got to support Colin Kaepernick. I love oh, yeah. it. Anytime an athlete takes their, or a performer, takes their uh, uh, platform and uses it for something that's social yeah. positive change. I'm with you 100%. You know, the guy the guy that first kneeled with him, Eric Reed, yeah. is playing here in Carolina. Yeah. And, and it has a, a big role staying connected to Colin. Yeah. But also within within the Panthers' defense, man. It's I know. So yeah. continuing to push that narrative. I love what they're yeah. doing as well, man. Absolutely. My, dude, a blessing, man. I, I, I'm really thankful, my man. Thank of, you, Wes. you taking time. And a busy schedule. You're out tomorrow. Yeah. overseas to continue your your tour yeah man best of luck to you thank you and, and i want to commend you man for for being a badass like literally choosing to to take a step towards what you're passionate about even at an older age and Thanks, continue man. forging through that path thank you i, I want to be a, a light to keep igniting people to make that decision and and, and use this platform to be able to absolutely do that. man it's never too late and i appreciate you having me on as you know i do my podcast too now and that's another thing i mean i'm having i'm loving doing that it's just never too late you discover back to school stuff. is amazing man back to school you guys gotta man. check it out back to school maz's podcast the conversations that you have, the people that you bring on, yeah. subject matter experts. Yeah, you don't play around. Yeah, uh, and it, man, it, I'm, I'm, it's in stuff. my feed all the time. Yeah. So, like I said, man, it's a blessing. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming to Creating Space. Thanks for coming to Charlotte. Thank you. Um, and all of us at Wheelhouse Media have been looking forward to this all week long. Appreciate you. <laughs>